reading from the 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The uh, account of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is recorded in all four Gospel accounts. We've heard two of them this morning already. Let's hear Matthew's version. And I want to speak to you from Matthew's uh, assessment of this morning. Chapter 21, Matthew's Gospel, beginning with verse 1. Matthew says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once you find a donkey tied there with a colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord has need of them and will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats, cloaks on them, and Jesus sat down on them. A very large crowd spread their coats in the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked this question, who is this? I want to speak to you this morning from that last few words of the 10th verse. Who is this? Jesus had uh, been living on this earth for 33 years. Of the last three and a half years, he had been involved in a public ministry. But all of that was coming to a climax this week for Jesus. He deliberately set his sights on Jerusalem and uh, began to head that way. Uh, I'm, I'm especially impressed with the words of the 20th chapter, which says in verse 17, Now as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised to life. If there was any doubt about what Jesus was doing and going to do and expected, he eliminated that doubt right then, telling the disciples exactly what was going to happen. He could not have said it clearer. He could not have defined it in a better way. He simply said, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentile world. They're going to arrest me, beat me, crucify me, but don't be discouraged. On the third day, I will rise again. And after following closely with Jesus for three and a half years, the disciples didn't get it again. In fact, if you read on down the next section, you'll find that immediately after that, two of the disciples' mother comes to Jesus and kneels in front of him, and Jesus said to her, what do you want, me to do? What do you want from me? And she said, I'd like you to establish that one of my sons will sit on your right side and one of my sons will sit on your left side when you come in power. How discouraging it must have been for Jesus to have poured out his thoughts and told them exactly what was going to take place as he focused in on these final days of his life. And the only response they could publicly give, according to Matthew, is two of his mother showed up with a request all about them. You know the story. If you, if you know uh, uh, Matthew's account, you'll know that Jesus said to her, well, that's not my decision. That's God's decision. And then he says something interesting to her. Can your sons, James and John, the sons of thunder, because of their explosive personality, can they drink of the same cup I'm about to drink from? And, of course, the mother in 
great mother-like faith and belief said absolutely they can, not having any idea what Jesus was talking about. They continue on walking towards Jerusalem. They get to Jericho, and, and as they leave Jericho, the Bible says there were a couple of blind men sitting beside the road who heard quite a commotion going by, and they asked what was taking place, and someone said, it's Jesus of Nazareth passing this way, and these blind men began to cry to the Lord, Lord, have mercy on us. It's interesting that the people with him, perhaps these same disciples, told these blind men to be quiet and not to bother Jesus. Jesus was not to be deterred, though. Ask these men, just like he asked James and John's mother, what do you want from me? They said, we want to have our sight restored. And Jesus said, it is done. And immediately their, their blindness was gone. Their eyesight was fully restored. 20-20 vision, because Jesus doesn't half do anything. He gave them their sight back again. And they joined the crowd that began to praise God. I'm amazed that all of this happening as Jesus announced his journey to Jerusalem. They got, the disciples were so far off. They were so misunderstanding of what Jesus was. They were so focused on the wrong things. And yet I would tell you this morning that the great temptation any church must, must overcome is a temptation to let our attention be divulged into secondary issues or other issues or non-issues. We forget the main thing. The main thing is that God sent his son, Jesus, who willingly left the glory and splendor of heaven, who came into this earth as a man who spent 33 years on this earth, three and a half years in public ministry. He was crucified as he gave himself as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of our life. He died shedding his own blood for the remission of our sins. And God placed his stamp of affirmation on Jesus three days later when he resurrected him, brought him back to life, and the tomb was empty in which Jesus said, and the world has been different ever since sometimes though the church gets mired just like these disciples and we get stuck on things like the color of the carpet in the building or how we sing whether we stand or we sit whether we sing off the wall as as it's sometimes or whether we sing out of a book i'm not being i'm not trying to make any to offend anybody but i'm just trying to emphasize the fact that the church has got to remember what's the most important thing and and what is our existence here for and it's not for these secondary things jesus through the misinterpretations of the disciples. In fact, the Bible says when James and John's mother came and asked the request, the other ten disciples heard her, and they got mad. In fact, Matthew says they were indignant at, at their brothers who asked such a self-centered request. But nonetheless, Jesus heads on into Jerusalem, and uh, his coming uh, was intentional, and it was it was a, it was dramatic for a purpose. Jerusalem. Let me talk about the facts of this uh, of this story the, on the triumphal entry. It was Passover time in Jerusalem. That was a big, big deal in their day. That was their number one festival. 1,500 years before, God propelled Israel out of the land of Egypt and Egyptian slavery through this process. And God wanted them to remember. You remember the story. The Pharaoh of Egypt wouldn't let Israel go and wouldn't let the people of God leave and worship and and even to have a three-day festival to worship God. God put forth a series of miracles to say to them, if you don't, my power is greater than your power. And although in Egypt you might think you're the world power and you're the biggest and baddest in the world, my power is greater than yours and I'm going to put a series of miracles to show you. And Pharaoh continued to deny the request. And you remember the final 
the final thing God did. He told Pharaoh and told all of them through Moses, Tonight I'm going to send the death angel across the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of every living thing will die. Then he said to Moses, Instruct your people, my people, that they are to take a sacrificial lamb and, and to sacrifice it and to worship me and to take some of the blood of that sacrificial lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost of your home. And when the death angel comes across the land, when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over that home. And it happened just that way. Egypt, the firstborn of all in Egypt, lost their life that day. Except where the blood of the lamb was present, there was life and not death. God wanted them to remember that, and so they had the Passover celebration, the Passover feast, and it was a big deal in the Jewish world. Of course, Jerusalem was the center of all things Jewish, and such a holy city it was. It was to the Jewish faith and to the, to the church at that time. It was what the Vatican is to, uh, in Rome to the Catholic faith. Jerusalem was a big deal, and Passover was an even bigger deal. In fact, it was so important that every Jewish male that lived within 20 miles uh, radius of Jerusalem was required by Jewish law to show up and to participate in Passover. In fact, it would be said that for every true Jewish person who sought God very uh, definitively that to, to experience Passover in Jerusalem one time in their life would be the goal of every Jewish citizen wherever they live throughout the world. It was a bucket list item, we would say. And so Jerusalem was filled with people. William Barclay, Jewish historian William Barclay says there might have been, there might have been as many as two and a half million people who descended upon Jerusalem. Wall-to-wall -wall people. The religious folks of the Jewish faith. The teachers of the law, in fact, the three most powerful men in the Jewish world were there, the Roman leader, the high priest, and, and the, the uh, high council of the Jewish faith were there. They were there for a big-time religious celebration. They were there to remember what God had done for them 1,500 years ago. They knew the law. They knew the prophecy about the Messiah. They had clear, a clear understanding of what would happen when the Messiah came. And they go back to Ezekiel's prophecy about 500 years before that said, when the Messiah comes, he will descend upon Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. He will ride on a donkey that has not been ridden before. And, and the people gathered that and grasped that. And so if there was any consternation about Jesus in the Jewish church and with the Jewish leaders, it was brought to a conclusion as Jesus deliberately took this, these steps that would say to all those who knew the law and the prophecy and prophecy that this is the Messiah. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. It was one of the most courageous things anyone has ever done. Jesus himself to march right into the territory of ground zero and the, those against him in a way that would distinguish himself as being the Messiah. Jesus never said he was the Messiah in this setting, but his actions would indicate that to a great extent. I wondered why Jesus didn't walk into Jerusalem. By the way, Jesus walked everywhere he went. For 33 years, he walked. He got in a boat a couple of times, we know, and rode across a little lake, but for the most part, he walked. He even walked on the water when, he, when a boat was not available. Why? Now is he not walking? Well, it's to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah and say to all the Jewish bigwigs, that's not in the Bible, by the way, that's my term, 
to say to all the Jewish folks who thought they had it all together, I'm riding in on this donkey that has never been ridden uh, as, as an act of being the Messiah. By the way, it has to be a mature donkey. It can't be a little tiny, a little tiny baby because Jesus rides this, these several miles on this donkey. In fact, there was, a, there was a kind of a, a, a practice in the Jewish world that animals that were set aside for a specific purpose, to be sacrificed or to be, or to be in, the, in the presence or the service of the king, would never be involved in common things. And so this donkey looks like he is one that has been set aside, never been ridden. No indication that the donkey did uh, manual labor or worked in the fields or plowed or carried. In fact, the mother of the donkey came along to signify its purity and its, its, uh, uh, its specialness. And Jesus came on the donkey. They threw their coats on him as, you, as we've read three times already. They put their coats on uh, the donkey. Jesus sat on that uh, on their cloaks and uh, on the donkey. They spread their, their, their coats in the, in the way so the donkey would, would walk on them. They cut palm branches down off trees. and lay. It, was, it was Jerusalem's version of a red carpet welcome. And the crowds went wild. Hosanna to the king. By the way, the the word used in the Greek for Hosanna is best translated, save us now, save now, deliver us now. They were saying as Jesus came into the city, deliver us now from the Roman oppression, deliver us now from taxes and the Roman taxes. I thought about that this week. Is anybody know what tomorrow is in, this, in the day? It's, it's April 15th and tax day. Uh, how wonderful it'd be to be able to say to Jesus, save us from the taxes of the time. That's what the people cried out. Save us now. And they gave Jesus a red carpet welcome. And he came into town slowly but surely and definitively. And even though some of the Jewish leader was saying to order these people to be quiet, Jesus said, they can't help but praise my name. In fact, if they are quiet, the rocks themselves are going to cry out. Jesus covets our praise. And sometimes the church today is short-sighted in the fact that we don't praise him enough. Sometimes in our testimonies to, the, to others, we often talk of the problems and the issues and the struggles. And We ought to be praising God at the center of everything we do. It's what he covets, and that's what happened on this day. And Jesus then rode that donkey right to the door of the church. And I didn't read the part of what Jesus did next, but he threw out the money changers in the church, and he he said, you guys have made, it, my house is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves, and I won't go into the time, that for time's sake, but they had figured out a way to, to, to make money out of the church, and in fact, you had to give a certain amount of money to the church, but you had to use a temple coin, a special coin, and of course, there were money changers to exchange your common money for the temple money at a user's fee, and you had to bring an animal to sacrifice, and there were inspectors of those animals, and if the inspector found anything he deemed to be defective in that animal, it was no longer used for sacrifice. By the way, there was a man selling perfectly blessed animals over here. You could find an animal for your sacrifice, and on and on and on it went. Jesus threw them out of the temple, and the church leaders could do nothing about it. Because they thought if they took Jesus, there would be a riot. And so Jesus, with the church leaders in mind, zeroed in on them 
he didn't just walk into town. He rode on a donkey, not just any donkey. He rode on a donkey that had never been ridden before. He fulfilled the prophecy to descend from the Mount of Olives about two miles away. Mount of Olives is about 3,000 feet above Jerusalem. And so the coming and, and hearing the cries and the praise of the people would be distinguished and recognized before he got into town. We call it the triumphal entry in, uh, into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday because of the palm branches they cut down and laid in front of Jesus. We, we honor this week. They thought Jesus was coming to save them and deliver them. He didn't come to Jerusalem to hear their, their cries or their praises. He came to Jerusalem to die on a cross. No one understood that. The disciples should have because, because Jesus told them specifically that. But the crowd, uh, focused on the crowd. Jesus coming into Jerusalem fulfilled all prophecy and uh, would have been recognized by the Jewish leaders who knew the law and who knew the prophecy. The people recognized Jesus, but they were confused as to who he was. They believed he was going to be the king that would deliver them from, from the oppression of the Romans. They believed he was going to free them from taxes. They believed he was going to be their deliverer. I wonder if some of this two million and a half people that were in Jerusalem had eaten the food Jesus provided when he fed 5,000 with, with nothing but a little boy's lunch to eat. I wonder if they had been part of the miracles and some of those who had been touched by Jesus were there. They had a great misunderstanding. They recognized Jesus, but they had a misunderstanding of who he was and what he was about to do. That really brings us to the crux of the, of the, of the story and of this day. Who is Jesus for us? We miss the whole significance of Palm Sunday and the whole significance of Easter if we don't recognize Jesus for who he is. While the crowd was confused, and while the indication is that towards the end of that week, in about five days or so, part of this same crowd would be not praising Jesus, but calling for him to be crucified. We have to realize what a great misunderstanding there was of who Jesus is and what he was all about. I, I, I'm tempted to, to, to look on this crowd of people with a little bit of disdain and think, how could they not know? How could they not understand? Jesus even told them. And yet I realize that though that this is still the issue the church faces today, not really understanding who Jesus is not really understanding what Jesus is about and what he is about to do. We live in a society that knows about Jesus, but doesn't always know him. We live in a society that, that has all kinds of, of ideas of what Jesus will do. I turned on the television set in the middle of the night a few nights ago to hear a man talking about his belief that God that Jesus came to show us how to live prosperously. He referenced the fact that the wise men came and brought Jesus gold. He referenced the fact that one time when Jesus needed money, he told the disciples to go to the lake, throw a hook in, and catch a fish that had money in its mouth. And He made the statement that Jesus and God are all about making sure his people are prosperous. And if you're really following God, and if you really connect with this, and if you're willing to sow a seed of faith in my ministry, you will force God, based on his word, to give you a harvest. 
And I watched that for about an hour thinking, I, I, I kind of hope that's true. <laughs> I kind of hope I could give $100 and, and reap a fortune. But yet I go to my Bible and find that Jesus had nothing to do with that. I find another guy that is that's a, that's a healer, a faith healer, and he even said, put your hand on the TV and, and over mine, and the power of God will come through and heal you of all your disease. In fact, he even said, God wants all of his people to be wealthy and healthy and to live a life absent of problems. And if you have problems, if you are not healthy, if you are not wealthy, you must be doing something wrong, and you've given the devil an entry into your life to create this havoc. And by the way, he ended his message with, I'll pray for you that God will deliver you from this. And if you'll send me a donation, not very far from this very location on the north side of town is a man just a few years ago that had advertised he had discovered a fountain of, of youth and a fountain of health in the, actually the city of Prosper outside of McKinney. And he drilled a well in the middle of this field and built a little structure around it and sold bottles of miracle water. For what Jesus wanted to do I'm not making any of this up <laughs> and in fact the state of Texas shut him down because he had drilled a well without a license and all that stuff I wanted to go take a drink of that water just in case there was some truth to it I, I'm being sarcastic I didn't do that I, I I read the scripture and find that Jesus has nothing to do with that knowing Jesus is is different than knowing who Jesus is and the need we have this day is that we push beyond knowing just about Jesus and we know him as our Savior. That's why he came. That's what he gives. Eternal life, victory over sin, victory over the work of the devil, to break the power of sin in one's life. Jesus came and shed his blood and gave himself up as a sacrificial lamb that was slain. He died at the exact time in which the, the, the daily sacrifice of the temple took place. To say to all, I am the sacrificial lamb. He began that journey on Palm Sunday as he headed into Jerusalem, fulfilling all prophecy right in the middle of the, of the most learned men of the Jewish faith to say to them, I am the Messiah. And they missed out on what he really was. There's a guy over in Kentucky that is the teaching pastor of a very large church who's written a book a few years ago. called. It's called, I Am Not a Fan. And he makes a distinction between a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And he compares it to a sports event. To say that we have a lot of people in church that come to church like they're on a stadium and they cheer their team on and they, they, they shout all kinds of things and there's happiness and there's, there, there, there's, there's a spectator aspect to it all. But that's not enough to receive the message and life's purpose for Jesus. You have to get in the game, he says. You have to get out on the field and participate. It's not enough to sit in the stands and, and talk about it all. You have to move from being a fan to a follower. He quotes a man that came to him not long before he wrote, wrote the book to say that I want you to pray for my young adult daughter. She, she's far away from God and she's turned her back on the church. And they had quite a talk about a fan or a follower. The man concluded with words that have haunted me since I read it. He said, you know, Brother Kyle, we chose to raise our daughter in church, but we should have chosen to raise her in Christ. 
and the church has let her down and the church is not enough to sustain her in faith and to give her a faith, we should have focused on raising her in Christ himself and what he has done. So I ask you this morning, who is Jesus for you? Oh, he's a friend. He's an advisor. He's a counselor. He's a mighty God, Isaiah says, but is he your Savior and Lord? That's what, what counts today. The Bible says that Jesus left the glory and splendor of heaven, willingly gave that up to come to this earth as in the form of a man. He would live and experience everything we experience. And, and when the time came, he would give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of, uh, of mankind. He shed his blood. He was killed without mercy on a cross. But God placed his stamp of validation on who Jesus was and what he did on the third day when he brought him back to life after he had already been dead. He is seated on the right at the right hand of the Father, the Bible says. He is making intercession for us. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he seeks to be that in our lives as well. And all it takes is an invitation from us to accept him. Kyle Eidelman begins his book by uh, by asking a question, he calls it by the initial DTR. Anybody know what that means? I went out with a girl for a few times, and second or third date, she asked me what my DTR was, and I thought I had some kind of disease or something. She wanted to she wanted to define the relationship. I had no relationship with her, so that was easy for me to define. Find our relationship this week ought to be a focus every one of us has as we enter the most holiest of holy weeks, the, one, the week in which Jesus came to Jerusalem intentional on purpose, fulfilling all prophecy amidst the, the naysayers and those who hated him and those who didn't understand, and even the very disciples who heard it from Jesus themselves and didn't understand. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice for your sins. I want to tell you this morning, the sacrifice and power of Jesus is still effective. He still has the power to break the power of sin in your life. He still has the power to forgive us and, and to cleanse us from the works of the enemy, uh, the devil himself, against all humanity. He has the power to keep and guide and direct our lives. He has the power to help us overcome temptation. He has the power to live in a right way for him. He has the power to, 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 to enable us, though the world around us, makes fun of us and chides us and laughs at us. He has the power to give us enough faith that will keep us consistently on the right way in this life and take us all the way to heaven. The, the, the tragedy of the crowd on, in Jerusalem on this day is that they knew about Jesus. They praised him. They shouted his praises. They made a big deal. In fact, the, Matthew says the whole city was stirred. The word he uses for stirred is the word we get the word seismic from. I mean, they, they made such a, a noise about Jesus that it shook the city. But how many of them failed to actually know Jesus for who he was? Lord and Savior, deliverer from sin, victorious over sin and death. He has the power to help us be just that person if we know who he is and we know him as our Savior. And so I challenge you this day, spend time this week defining your relationship. If you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, uh, you can do that today and you should do it today. You should do it in this very service. And uh, we trust 
that God is at work in our church and all of our lives. Our, our, our goal is to stay focused on the right things, not to get off on secondary issues, stay focused on the right things, and to know him for who he is. I challenge you this week to define your relationship. It will mean so much to you as we come next Sunday to celebrate Resurrection Day. I read an interesting story about a, a guy named uh, Timothy Henry Gray. December 27th, two days after Christmas in 2012, Thomas Henry Gray was found dead under a bridge in rural Wyoming. I guess uh, all of Wyoming is some sparsely uh, populated. That could be about anywhere. Nobody knew who he was. They conducted the, the, the examination. There were no signs of foul play for his death. Uh, there were no signs of, uh, of, uh, of any struggle. Uh, he was laying there deceased. And after the autopsy was concluded, it was determined that he simply died of hypothermia. Thomas Henry Gray froze to death. A homeless man, out in the middle of nowhere in the wintertime by himself. Well, they tried to, the authorities tried to find next of kin, and they began to research who he was. And they were shocked to realize that he shouldn't have been homeless at all. He was actually a multi-millionaire. His great-great-grandfather had made a fortune in copper mines and in the expansion of the railroads. His great-great-grandfather helped begin before, uh, before the, the organized crime took over, as it says, he helped begin start a little town out in the desert of Nevada called Las Vegas. When his great-great-grandfather died, he left everything to his daughter, uh, Hewitt. She was estimated to have a worth of $340 million. And as the descendants came down, it came down to even to Thomas Henry Gray. And his portion of the inheritance was in the millions and millions of dollars. And they couldn't figure out why he was living such a way when he had such great means at his disposal. And they came to this conclusion, that talking to family and things uh, of those who might have known him in the past, Thomas Henry, Way, uh, Thomas Henry Gray died a pauper because he had never connected with his father to understand who he was and he lived far below the level he should have been living he lived in such a way that took his very life when he had the money to live like any any way he wanted he failed to connect with his father to find what was available to him that's the message of, of easter folks we live below our means we live below where god would have us to be we, we don't ask our father what's available and we struggle in sin, and over we struggle with the devil when God wants to give us real victory over life. We end this service today not on necessarily a high note. We end this service on a note in which we, we examine ourselves and we define the relationship with Jesus and we realize what's about to happen to him as he's arrested, bruised, beaten, and crucified. But he did it all for you and for me that we might have life. I challenge you to define your relationship today, and we ask God to help every one of us as we seek and search for him. The Bible said those who search for him will find him if we search with all of our heart, and we trust God to do that today. Let's stand and bow our heads for prayer.
And then uh, Derek is going to lead us in singing a, a great hymn, and we will be dismissed for downstairs. Our Father, we are so thankful to be in your house today on this Palm Sunday, in which we realize again that you didn't run from what was about to take place. You didn't shy away from it. You marched into Jerusalem with your head high, knowing what was going to happen, and you endured great pain and suffering to offer yourself as a sacrifice for my sin and for the wrong of my life. Lord, help me to help me to seek to grasp you this week in such a way that we cast our allegiance with you. We define our relationship with you. We move from being a fan to, to embracing you as a follower. And we take full advantage of what our Father has prepared for us. May we not live as an outcast like Timothy did. May we live as your child because we accept your sacrifice and forgiveness for us. Help us now as we contemplate these things this week and we look forward to an empty tomb and a resurrection celebration in just a few days. Guide us now in all that we do and we will be careful to praise you for your great goodness to us. And everyone says, Amen.